I'm Paul Brandis. You're listening to Jackie, a podcast about my book that explores Jacqueline Kennedy's life from November 1963 to October 1968, her transformation from First Lady to Jackie O. By the fall of 1966, Jackie's recovery from the assassination continued to progress. The horror of 1963 never went away, but she had learned to suppress its dark memories. I spoke with Clint Hill, Jackie's Secret Service agent, best known for leaping onto the Kennedy limo in Dallas. So she was doing a pretty good job of putting 1963 behind her by this point. Is that fair? I don't think that's true. She had gotten to the point where that was not constantly present in her thoughts and her thinking. As I said in a prior episode, in the mid-1960s, Jacqueline Kennedy was not on the A-list. She was the A-list. One sign of her social power came in November 1966 when Truman Capote, at that time one of the most prominent writers in America, threw what came to be known as the party of the century, the so-called black and white ball, at New York's Plaza Hotel. I asked Jackie biographer Pamela Keogh about it. Capote was being, you know, bribed and people were exactly. begging, begging yeah. him, please let me come to this party. And, Jackie's, yeah. and Jackie was, yeah, I don't think so. Yeah. Well, what it shows, it shows how cool she is. You know, she didn't need it, kind of. You know, yeah. She's like, look, I could, I could have those people at my house just pick up the phone. But it wasn't all fun and games. On November 22nd, 1966, the third anniversary of the assassination, Jackie, being the terrific mom that she was, was walking John Jr. home from school. In her own words, this is what happened next. I noticed that a little group of children, some of them from John's class, was following us. Then one of the children said quite loud, your father's dead, your father's dead. You know how children are. They've even said it to me when I run into them at school as if, well, this day John listened to them saying it over and over and he didn't say a word. He just came close to me, took my hand and he squeezed it as if he were trying to reassure me that things were all right. And so we walked home together with the children following us. Let me repeat the most important part of Jackie's statement. Quote, John didn't say a word. He just came close to me, took my hand, and squeezed it as if he were trying to reassure me that things were all right. This, this was the problem. Remember what Clint Hill said, that by 1966, the assassination was no longer constantly present in Jackie's thoughts, and yet she never knew when something would happen to bring it all back, the searing pain and agony. This time, her thin sense of security had been violated by, of all things, a group of schoolchildren on the sidewalk. It was this sensitivity, perfectly understandable, that drove Jackie to try and stop something I spoke of in our last episode, William Manchester's book about the assassination, The Death of a President. In 1964, Jackie and Robert Kennedy asked Manchester to write it, only to realize in 1966 that the book would be far too painful and intrusive. I spoke with historian and Kennedy biographer Larry Sabato of the University of Virginia. 
Why did they select him to write a book in the first place, knowing that he would probably wind up uh, doing something like that? I don't think they really focused on it. I don't think they knew he would uh, write about the assassination in the kind of bloody detail he did. But, you know, it was inevitable. Uh, but I can understand why they didn't think of that and why they didn't act on it. And, and Manchester was a very good writer. He was a, a factual writer. Um, lots of things you don't think through when you're uh, in intense mourning. So I have great sympathy for them there. But now Jackie was determined to stop Manchester from publishing these gory and deeply personal things. Shortly before Christmas 1966, Jackie told her lawyer to sue. She was so sure that she was in the right, so sure that she would prevail, that she had told Manchester, anybody who is against me will look like a rat unless I run off with Eddie Fisher. Fisher was a scandal-plagued singing star of the 1950s and 60s. The fight over the death of a president had been huge news for months, extensive TV and newspaper coverage, and now a lawsuit. Just one thing, though, after all this time, Jackie still had not even read the book. Here's Manchester's son, John. She had other people read it for her, and she had a personal secretary, Pam Turner, who not only read the book for her, but was making editorial suggestions to my dad. And to put this into perspective, my father was, you know, he was an old school kind of guy and did not have a lot of, uh, aside from Jackie Kennedy, but he, he, he didn't have a lot of res- as much respect for women as, as a man might have today. Uh, women, you know, doing what he would consider to be men's work. And he was outraged that she was, she was making editorial, you know, decisions and cuts and so on on the book and that she didn't know anything about writing and so on. Anyway, that's his account of it. And I'm putting in a little bit of my interpretation. But uh, so, no, she didn't read it. So she had nothing to directly to object to. And so the lawsuit was filed, huge front page news. But there was a problem with the argument being made by the plaintiff, in other words, by Jackie. Here's William Manchester himself in a 1983 interview. The day Jackie filed a suit against me was December the 16th, 1966. On page one of the New York Times, there was a story in which he described my book as, quote, tasteless and distorted, unquote. On page two, column one, the affidavit she filed was printed, and it opened, I have not read Mr. Manchester's book, nor do I intend to. Only one journalist put two and two together, and that was Murray Kent. He says, she says it's tasteless and distorted, and she has says she hasn't read it. Nobody else picked it up. I think that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Of course, having filed the lawsuit while admitting she hadn't actually read the book, Jackie now decided to read it. In January, hours before the trial was set to begin, she stayed up all night reading the death of a president, reliving in deeply painful, gory detail all that she had spent years trying to forget. When she was done, she had a one-word review, fascinating. The lawsuit was, as Manchester later wrote, settled. But out of respect for Jackie and to allow her to save face, Manchester cut about seven pages worth of material, about one percent of the book. He called them, quote, token changes. 
And so it was over. Ahead of the book's publication, Look Magazine began running a four-part series. And listen to this. A Gallup survey found that 70, 70, 70 million Americans read some or all of it. 70 million people. And when the book itself came out, to say that it was a blockbuster was an understatement. The Death of a President was one of the biggest books of the 1960s, one of the biggest books ever published. Here again, John Manchester. After the controversy was over, after the book was published, my father and Jackie and Bobby pretty much, uh, you know, uh, shook hands, became friends again. She sent him a letter uh, a five-page letter in her lovely handwriting, very, very nice uh, penmanship, uh, in which she talked about it being a book that would last down into history. She was right about that, but one thing Jackie was not right about was her belief that her image and reputation were untouchable. A syndicated columnist, Vera Glazer, wrote that since her husband's assassination, quote, The nation's heart has gone out to Jackie in love, sympathy, and protectiveness, end quote. But Glazer added that the very public spat over the Manchester book only served to prolong the nation's trauma. She went on to accuse Jackie of being a, quote, professional martyr whose mourning had gone on too long. One backdrop for this criticism was the Vietnam War, which was raging in 1967 and killing large numbers of Americans. Glazer pointed out that with all due respect to Jackie and her suffering, thousands of war widows who lacked her wealth and stature were also mourning young men who had been cut down by violence. Even the New York Times, which for years had treated Jackie with deference, was critical over her fight with Manchester. In an editorial, it said, quote, having made her original decision to have him write a book, she cannot now escape its consequences. Other newspapers then began criticizing her as well. One headline said, Jackie comes off her pedestal, and added that Jackie would, quote, never again appear in the limelight with quite all that queenly dignity intact. By the end of January 1967, a survey by former Kennedy pollster Lou Harris said that one-third of Americans now thought less of Jackie and one-fifth thought less of Robert Kennedy. This isn't to say that Jackie was no longer popular or respected. Of course she was. It did mean, though, that she was no longer sacrosanct or untouchable. Photographers became more aggressive with her, none more so than a man named Ron Galella. In 1967, he saw her at a gallery on Madison Avenue. It was so crowded, I didn't get a good picture. So I I followed her to get her address, you know. Uh, and once I knew her address, I staked her out, and that's how I got a lot of pictures of her. just parked my car across the street from her apartment and waited for her to come out. If I see a limousine, I know that she might come out, or a taxi, and just follow her. That's how I got pictures of her. I went to her apartment. Galella had found his meal ticket, taking photos of Jackie everywhere she went. He became one of the first true American paparazzo, a term which really only dates back to 1960, when it was coined by the director Federico Fellini in a movie called The Dolce Vita, The Good Life in English. 
Well, first of all, she was attractive. But what, what, what drew me attention to her was, number one, she didn't pose. She was full of life. She would go out and on dates or shopping. And I like to take pictures of candidates, of people doing things, and because they're more meaningful. He was obsessed with Jackie, consumed with taking photos of her. She came to hate Galella and the way he was always there whenever she emerged from her apartment building. Sometimes he sprang out from behind a car or bushes in Central Park. But nothing angered Jackie more than when he took pictures of Caroline and John. This went on for years. Jackie eventually took him to court and won a restraining order against him. Jackie fans to this day detest Galella for the way he pestered Jackie, but he turns it around and says that very public wanted more of Jackie, what she was wearing, where she went, and with who. There are numerous Jackie fan sites today on Facebook, Instagram, and so forth, where people profess their love of Jackie while posting pictures, perhaps not knowing that they were probably taken by Ron Galella. It was a big market. That was part of the reason... It was a financial uh, income from her that was good. I could sell the pictures all over. Everybody was interested in Jackie. So that was one of my motives for going after her. But other than that, she was full of life, and I like to take pictures of celebrities doing things. I don't like them posing. Fortunately, there were no photographers in March when Jackie made a rare trip to Washington for a sad event, the burial of her husband in his new and permanent grave at Arlington. President Kennedy had died on Friday, November 22, 1963, and was buried just three days later. The grave was dug in a hurry and was only meant to be temporary. In prior episodes, I've mentioned that architect John Wernicke was selected by Jackie and Robert Kennedy to design JFK's permanent resting place. It was now ready. On March 14th, in the dark of night, the vault containing the late president's coffin was placed in the new grave. On either side were placed the tiny coffins of Patrick Kennedy, who died in 1963, and a daughter stillborn in 1956. She was never officially named, but Jackie later referred to her as Arabella. Jackie did not attend the actual reburial of her husband, daughter, and son. It would have been far too painful. But early the next morning, it was the Ides of March, she attended a brief graveside service. Joining her were President Johnson and his Secret Service agent, Clint Hill. It was a rainy day, it was a rainy morning, very early in the morning, and there's just a very few people for privacy. They didn't want anybody else there. Jackie stood in the cold morning rain for 20 minutes while Richard Cardinal Cushing presided over the sad service. She didn't say anything, and neither did President Johnson. It was strictly Cardinal Cushing. Two months later, Jackie was reminded that sudden death was always near when Sissy Ormsby Gore was killed in a car crash in England. Sissy was the wife of David Ormsby Gore, who had been British ambassador to the United States during the Kennedy administration. JFK and Jackie had been very close to them, and Jackie, along with Robert Kennedy, flew over for the funeral. Newsreels show Jackie emerging from the funeral service, the sadness in her face sometimes obscured by her now trademark oversized sunglasses. 
Drawn together in shared grief, Jackie and David, who was also known as Lord Harlech, grew closer together. Again, here's Pamela Keogh. Harlech was, was, I would say, one of JFK's closest friendships, personal friendships. And then JFK appreciated Harlech's intellectual ability, sense of history. Harlech could talk to JFK in a forthright manner and give him advice about Khrushchev and the state of the world and so on. So I think Harlech was one of Kennedy's closest intellectual equals friends, advisors. So it's almost like Jackie and Lord Harlech found themselves in, in an extremely similar situation drawn together by tragedy. You know, they're, Harlech loved her husband, she loved her husband, his wife died, her husband died. And I think they were not thrown together, but clearly when you're at that level in society or the world, there's not that many people you can talk to and trust. Mm -hmm. And she, both she and Lord Harlech had a very similar sort of unfortunately tragedies. And then they could, they could maybe comfort each other, talk to each other, confide in one another. This relationship, bonded in sorrow, would soon blossom into a new relationship for Jackie, a serious one. More on this later. It was now mid-1967, and Jackie's social life was busy and varied. Dinner parties, galas, movies, the opera, all that New York had to offer. She had escorts for these events, of course, distinguished statesmen, business leaders, prominent men of the arts. They were all friends, so no one really thought much when one friend showed up in Newport News, Virginia in May for the christening of the aircraft carrier John F. Kennedy. No president understood this nation's historic role. What a day that was. President Johnson spoke, and then, with the shriek from a shipyard whistle, nine-year-old Caroline Kennedy smashed a bottle of champagne over the ship's bow. After it was over, Jackie was talking with friends when all of a sudden, a man emerged from the crowd and walked over to her. It was Aristotle Onassis. According to one account, Jackie stopped in mid-sentence and spun towards him. Oh, Ari, she said, I didn't know you were here. She seemed delighted. It was the first time that Jackie and Ari had been seen in public together in the United States. Even so, no one thought much of it. After all, Jackie socialized with many men, and besides, Onassis, the swashbuckling Greek tycoon, was believed to be in a serious relationship with Maria Callas, the famed opera soprano. And yet, when asked that year about his relationship with Callas, Onassis would say privately that it was not going well and lacked, in his word, spice. Onassis, it seemed, had his eye on a far bigger prize. Shortly after their encounter, Jackie flew off with Caroline and John to Ireland. She wanted them to see their father's ancestral home. I'm just happy to be here in the land my husband loved so much with his children. And for them, I think it's a little bit like coming home. And I hope we will come back again and again. Thank you. She and some American friends had rented a huge country house. As she took her kids around to see the sights, it seemed the greatest sight of all was Jackie herself, who made a splash at a horse race, the famed Irish Sweeps Derby. At one of the richest races in the calendar, Jackie Kennedy, guest of President De Valera, was everybody's favorite and clearly enjoying the occasion. Everyone loved it, this nostalgic, bittersweet journey. Then, one afternoon, Jackie decided to go swimming alone. She walked half a mile to a channel that she had swum across before at low tide. 
but it was now high tide making the distance greater. She made it halfway before being overtaken by the current. It was swift and powerful and began to drag Jackie out to sea. She later wrote, these are her words, the water was so cold that one could not hold one's fingers together. I am a very good swimmer and can swim for miles and hours, but the combination of current and cold were something I had never known. There was no one in sight to yell to. I was becoming exhausted, swallowing water and slipping past the spit of land when I felt a great porpoise at my side. It was Mr. Walsh. She's referring to Secret Service agent John Walsh. She continues, He set his shoulder against mine, and together we made the spit. Then I sat on the beach coughing up seawater for half an hour while he found a poor itinerant and borrowed a blanket for me. Jackie didn't know that Walsh had followed her to the cove. If he hadn't, the devastated widow who had once considered taking her life but couldn't do it likely would have been swept out to sea and vanished without a trace. For the second time in three and a half years, Jacqueline Kennedy had escaped a brush with death. Little did she know, however, that within a year, it would strike again. In my next episode, A Marriage Proposal. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll check out my new book on Jackie Between Her Two Marriages. It's called Jackie, Her Transformation from First Lady to Jackie O. Available everywhere, and if you're enjoying this show, make sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help other history fans find it. Special thanks this week to Clint Hill, Pamela Keogh, Larry Sabato, John Manchester, and Ron Galella. Thanks to producer Hannah Ray Leach, sound designer and engineer Sean Roll Hoffman, and executive producers Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. Show theme music by Josh Perlman Hall. I'm Paul Brandis. Thanks for listening. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II, and people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts.